There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 14, The Varangian Guard. Thanks for listening in. Last week we looked at how Kievan Rus continued on its slow, steady, almost imperceptible decline. We covered the main reasons for this autumnal gloom. The rising importance of other Rus sub-princedoms, the Cumans, but most importantly, the reduction in Byzantine trade and wealth due to the loss of the Empire's territory to the Normans in Italy, to the west, and to the Turks in Anatolia to the east. And we looked at some of the interesting characters that inhabited the early 12th century Rus lands. Sviatopolk II, Vladimir II, Mustislav, our old friend Nestor, Githa, who was the daughter of Harold II Godwinson of England, and Yuri Dolgoruki with the incredibly long arms or long reach. But this week we're going to take another short break from the chronological narrative and spend some time in the company of the Varangian Guard, who were the elite bodyguards of the Byzantine emperors and who had strong connections to both the Rus and the Anglo-Saxons. Now before we start, I'm conscious that I left a number of items just hanging there at the end of the last episode. The whole Kievan winter is coming thing the Byzantine Empire's diminishing fortunes, and Yuri Dolgoruki's supposed founding of Moscow. But don't worry, even though I know that you do, these loose threads will be woven back into the main story over the coming weeks. For now though, let's relax in the knowledge that for this episode, we don't have to constantly double-check whether it was Sviatoslav II or Sviatopolk II who looked like a pirate. And just for the record, it was Sviatoslav I. Or you don't get to listen to me stumble my way through early Russian pronunciation, because this time I'll be stumbling my way through Greek pronunciation. Okay, Paidiom! 
I'm going to start by taking you back to the 9th century, the 800s, when the first Rus or Varangian stronghold in modern-day Russia was established, Novgorod in 868. And then we saw a number of raids undertaken by the Rus on Constantinople, or Mikrogard as they called it, the richest city in Europe at the time. Interestingly enough, and I didn't cover this in the earlier episodes, it's thought that the term Varangian comes from the Old Norse word Verengi, which can be loosely translated as sworn companion. And whilst I'm in expansionary mode, Mikrogard means simply the great city, or the city of Michael. Okay, back to the raids. Now, each of these raids would follow a familiar pattern. The Varangians would catch the Byzantines by surprise and spend several days plundering the suburbs. Then they'd be chased off across the Sea of Marmara and plunder some more in that area. Then there'd be a big storm, the Varangians would limp away northwards, and then usually in the following year, a treaty encompassing a trade agreement would be reached. But there was another aspect to these treaties, something of a counterbalance, in that the Rus would get their trading privilege, privileges, but the Byzantines would get a contingent of Rus warriors to fight for the empire as mercenaries or paid soldiers. In the early 10th century, Byzantine sources record that Varangian mercenaries serving in the empire's army were involved with a number of different expeditions to Crete, Italy and Syria, but at this point they're not seen as a separate force and there's no specific mention of a Varangian guard. In the year 988 though, the Emperor Basil was in a spot of bother, and as we saw in an earlier episode of the podcast, he requested military assistance from Vladimir I of Kiev to help defend his throne. And so in a compliance with the treaty made by his father, Sviatoslav I, after the siege of Dorostolon, in 971, Vladimir sent 6,000 men to help Basil out. But Vladimir was being a bit sneaky or a bit clever here, depends how you look at it, because whilst his offer looked to be made in the right spirit, in reality he took the opportunity to rid himself of some of his most unruly warriors, which in any case he was unable to pay. And if you remember to seal the deal, in exchange for the 6,000 soldiers, Vladimir got to marry Basil's sister, Anna Porfirogenita, but there was one final catch in that Vladimir had to also agree to convert to Christianity and to bring the Rus people into the Christian faith. So on the face of it, Vladimir looks to be ahead in terms of the political bargaining. He's got a load of troublemakers, uh, got rid of a load of troublemakers, saved himself a shed load of cash, got a new bride of unquestionable pedigree, which vastly improves his standing, and has entered the world of Christendom, which again ups his profile. But what does Basil get out of this multifaceted diplomatic wrangling? Well, in 989, these Varangians, led by the Emperor, landed at a place called Chrysopolis to engage with the forces of the rebel general Bardas Phocas. And the two armies were lined up facing one another when, suddenly, Focus galloped forward, seeking personal combat with the Emperor, who was riding just in front of his own troops. 
However, just as he prepared to charge, Focus suffered some kind of massive seizure or stroke and fell from his horse stone dead. And then whilst everyone on both sides froze and wondered what the hell had just happened, two things took place very quickly. First of all, some Byzantine soldiers rode up to where Focus lay, cut off his head and galloped back to Basil. And then the rebel forces just, well, they just ran for it and the rebellion was effectively over. But this didn't have any impact upon the Varangian mercenaries who broke ranks and thundered after the retreating army. And according to Byzantine sources, took great delight in hacking many of them to pieces. And so it's this bunch of savage thugs that in effect go on to form the first official Varangian guard, or in Greek, the Tagmaton Varangon. And to answer the question asked a couple of minutes ago, what does Basil get out of this? Well, first of all, he gets out of a tough scrape. Although you could argue that this had nothing to do with getting the 6,000 soldiers and everything to do with Focus's seizure. Secondly, he's tied Kiev more closely to the Empire's influence via the marriage of his sister and the conversion of Vladimir and the Rus state to Christianity. And then thirdly, he has obtained a force of soldiers who, whilst they are on the wild side, are also dedicated, incredibly well-trained, furnished with the best of armour, and most importantly, devoted to Basil. Mainly because, and unlike previous Byzantine royal guards, they were not subject to political and courtly intrigues, and nor were they influenced by the provincial elites or the common citizens. And initially, this new Varangian guard saw extensive service in southern Italy at the beginning of the 11th century, fighting against the Normans and Lombards who were trying their best to extinguish Byzantine authority in the region. And at the Battle of Cannae in 1018, they helped the Byzantines achieve a decisive victory. The Varangian guard then participated in the partial reconquest of Sicily from the Arabs under the Byzantine general George Maniarches in 1038, but here they fought alongside the Normans and the Lombards. And a prominent member of the guard at this time was Harald Hardrada, our old friend Harald, who went on to become King of Norway as Harald III between 1046 and 1066, and as we know, who tried and failed to invade Anglo-Saxon England. Back in Italy, things started to take a turn for the worse. In 1041, a force of Varangians stationed at Bari were called up to fight the Normans, but things didn't go well and many were drowned in the subsequent retreat across the Ofanto River, and then later in the year they were again defeated in battle. And out to the east in Anatolia, which is uh, modern-day or sort of middle of modern-day Turkey, we're told that virtually all of the Emperor's Varangian guard were slaughtered at the disastrous Battle of Manzikert in 1071. So a bit of a mixed bag, but this is more to do with the overall difficulties being experienced by the Empire rather than a lack of Varangian military prowess. And so after Manzikert, the guard needed to be restocked and luckily for the Byzantines, a steady supply of fresh recruits had just become available. And this was all to do with the Norman invasion of England in 1066. Many of the Saxons who'd fought at the Battle of Hastings, and in fact many of those who hadn't, fled the kingdom 
and initially headed for safety in Central and Northern Europe. And in 1088, a contingent of them crossed the Mediterranean and headed towards Byzantium. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, one source has more than 5,000 of them arriving in uh, 235 ships. And those who did not enter Imperial service settled down on the Black Sea coast, building and garrisoning the town of Kivitot or Sivatot for the Emperor Alexius I Komnenos. But those who did became so vital to the Varangians that from this point onward, the guard was commonly called the England Varangoi or the Anglo Varangians. And we have a couple of first-hand accounts relating to the newly formed guard. The chronicler and Byzantine princess Anna Komnena refers to these axe-bearing barbarians as being from Thule, which is likely a reference to the British Isles or Scandinavia, somewhere Anna had never been and probably couldn't imagine. And another aside here, Anna Komnena was a fascinating character who is probably best known for being the author of a piece of work called the Alexiad, which is an account of the reign of her father, the Byzantine Emperor Alexios, and one of the most important primary sources of 11th and 12th century Byzantine history. And another quote um, from the Byzantine civil servant, soldier and historian John Kinnamos, who refers to these axe-bearers that guarded the emperor as the British nation, which has been in service to the Roman emperors, here he means the Byzantines, from a long time back. Now, Kinnamos was writing in the latter part of the 12th century, indicating perhaps that the more Danish and Saxon composition had continued to be the mainstay of the guard. And notice in both of those quotes, there's reference to axe-bearers or axe-bearing. And that's because the Varangian guard's weapon of choice was the fearsome, 140 centimetre or 55 inch long double-headed axe. Anyway, these new Saxon Danish recruits saw almost immediate action in Sicily, this time against the Normans under Robert Giscard, who was trying to take the island away from the empire. Unfortunately though, the Anglo-Saxons were just a bit too eager to challenge their enemy. Remember, they've got a a score to settle with the Normans. And so they broke from their formation and charged into the right wing of the Normans. Their initial impact was devastating to Giscard's army, but once the tide was stemmed, 
the Anglo-Saxons were surrounded and woefully outnumbered, and then afflicted by weariness and heavy armour, a large number of the group were picked off in a piecemeal manner by Norman countercharging. Okay, but apart from being used as extra troops to bulk up regular Byzantine forces, let's take a look at what else the Guard were expected to do. So their duties and purpose uh, were similar, if not identical, to services provided by the Kievan Druzina, the Swedish stroke Norwegian Herd, and the Anglo-Saxon Housecarls. The Guard served as a personal bodyguard of the Emperor swearing an oath of loyalty to him, or, on the odd occasion, her. And they were headed by a separate officer, the Akoluthos, who was usually a Byzantine native, and during peacetime they undertook ceremonial duties as retainers and acclaimers, and the acclaiming involved announcing the emperor's presence and visitors to the royal court and proclaiming important news. And they also performed some police duties, especially in cases of treason and conspiracy. During periods of warfare, the Varangian Guard were only used in battle during the really critical moments, or where the battle was most fierce, and contemporary Byzantine chroniclers again note with a mix of terror and fascination that the Scandinavians were frightening, both in appearance and in equipment. They attacked with reckless rage and cared nothing about their own safety. Now this description probably refers to a small fringe group called berserkers. That's where we quite obviously get the word berserk from. And they were the fiercest of the fierce and, or another way of looking at it, is the maddest of the mad. And who before battles went into a kind of trance which is said to have given them superhuman strength and no sense of fear or pain. The best part of the job description though, and probably the one thing that would have made me sign up, is that when a Byzantine emperor died, the Varangians had the unique right of rushing to the imperial treasury and taking as much gold and as many gems as they could carry. A procedure known in Old Norse as Palutasvaf, which means palace pillaging. And I bet it was a sight to behold. But you have to wonder if it actually incentivised keeping the Emperor safe and alive. Alive, I, I guess it did. Now this privilege enabled many of the guards to return home as wealthy men, which in turn encouraged even more Scandinavians and Rus to enlist. But the loyalty of the Varangians was legendary, and became a trope of Byzantine writers. Writing about her father's seizing of the imperial throne in 1081, Again, Anna Komnena noted that he was advised not to attack the Varangians, who still guarded the emperor Nicephorus, for the Varangians regard loyalty to the emperors and the protection of their persons as a family tradition, a kind of sacred trust. This allegiance, she noted, they preserve inviolate, and they will never brook the slightest hint of betrayal. And unlike the native Byzantine guards that were so mistrusted by Basil II, the Varangian guards' loyalties lay with the position of the emperor, not the man who sat on the throne. And this was made clear in 969 when the guards failed to avenge the death by assassination of the emperor Nicephorus II. A servant had managed to call for the guards while the emperor was being attacked. But when they arrived, he was dead. And so they immediately knelt before John Simiskis, remember him in his red boots, 
night before as his murderer and hailed him as emperor, no doubt just before they rushed off to the treasury to fill their boots. So if Nikephorus had been alive, they would have defended him to the last breath. But as he was now dead, there was no point in avenging him. And they had a new master now. However, this reputation, this reputation for loyalty, didn't always match the truth. In 1071, after the Emperor Romanos IV Diogenes was defeated by Sultan Ap Arslan at Manzikert, a palace coup was staged before Romanos could return to Constantinople. A guy called John Ducas used the Varangian Guard to depose the absent emperor, arrest Empress Eudoxia, and proclaim his nephew, the stepson of Michael VII, as emperor. Thus, instead of defending their absent emperor, the Varangians were used by the usurpers. But all good things come to an end, and for the Varangian Guard, or the emperor's wineskins, as they were called, because of their fondness for strong Greek wine. This happened during the Fourth Crusade in the years 1203-1204. When the Crusaders started their final assault in April 1204, the Varangians retreated with the emperor to the palace. And here they held their ground until the emperor and large parts of the nobility had secretly left the city. And then after the negotiations, they surrendered, that's the Varangians, that is, to the Crusaders. And many of them either returned to their homelands or found employment with the Latins. And after this, whilst the Varangian guard carried on, it ceased to be dominated by the Rus and the Saxons. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. We're going to leave it there for this week. Next time, we'll be back in the lands of the Rus, and we'll be looking at the overall landscape after Mustaslav's death. And remember the chronicler's quote from the last episode, and, and I'm going to do my chronicler's quote voice again. He was the last ruler of the United Rus lands, and upon his death, the land of Rus was torn apart. Okay, we've got that to look forward to. Just before I go, if you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, then it's via the website, historyofrussia.podbean.com, via Twitter at historyrussia1, or via email nordicworld at outlook.com. Okay, so until the next time, stay safe, keep your chins up and your heads down, and I'll see you all soon.